0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, I'm talking to John Elledge about our political high points and low points of the last year. And also why the Christmas film Love Actually has some lessons for the Labour Party. Just a quick note before we start. As we are recording this, there was some amount of building work going on. So if you could hear random tapping and banging sounds, that's why. John, thanks so much for coming back.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I've always wanted to be a Christmas specialist. Like, I'm hoping this doesn't say too much about my any resemblance I may have to Santa at this stage in my life. But...
1: It's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting one because we're gonna try and do some political highlights and lowlights, and then we're gonna segue effortlessly into random Christmas things. I'm going so to talk about goats. You're going to talk about I'm
0: goats. Going to talk about
1: goats. I'm yeah, to- um, we basically got you on this podcast, so you could talk about goats. But let's start with 2022 as a year in politics, and we're doing reviews of what happened elsewhere. And I'm sure like every media outlet has its has its whole lists of trying to recap the year that we last had. So we thought we would stick to one high point and one low point each of the last year in politics. Do you wanna kick off? You can start high or low, it's up to you.
0: Okay, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with high because i still like I think it's important at this time of year to to remember what we're thankful for and to celebrate the good things that happened to us. And this was the year that Boris Johnson was forced out of office. And I personally have been waiting for f- to see that man humbled for quite a long time. And I think whatever else is going on in, the, in British politics and the state of our economy and the fact that none of us have enough energy or food at the moment, all of which is bad. It is nonetheless possible to warm our hearts on the fact that Boris Johnson was finally so unpopular that he was forced out of office.
1: And it is worth just replaying. How that played out, because it's felt, and if you can cast your mind back to January, that essentially the first six months of the year were dominated by partygate scandal, would it force Boris Johnson out? Would he be able to weather it? oh look, he's done it, oh look, other people have resigned, but he hasn't he's won a vote of confidence, he's absolutely fine, oh no, everyone's resigning on mass. what's going to happen now? How kind of significant do you think the manner of the departure was?
0: I think it said a lot about. Who he was, certainly, in that there was a lot of briefing going on that it was all okay because they were going to make junior staff take the fall for it. And, like, my theory about Boris Johnson has always been that he's got this kind of quite ancient Roman approach to politics. He doesn't really see other people, he just sees them as the mob, as the backdrop to his own ambitions. And it felt like when they were putting out those briefings that he had forgotten that these were also real people with their own feelings who might just possibly react badly to being forced to take the rap and maybe put out briefings of their own. And so I thought... it. The only way of getting past that crisis, I think, would have been to a certain show of humility that he was genuinely not capable of.
1: And when it did come to it, the actual moment, it was really convenient timing for me because I'd just been on honeymoon having a wonderful time. And I got back and I was like, everything is depressing. I would really like to be back on the beach that I was on before. Why am I doing this job? And then Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak really helpfully resigned and everything kicked off which made me feel much better about about being back over a a 48 72 hour period, the weirdest drawn out defenestration of a S- prime minister.
0: Where Sky had the ticker, the yeah. running count of ministers who had resigned from the government. And that wonderful bit where it, it, the way of getting yourself described as a senior Tory that week was to have spoken to a journalist. Was, oh, Bob Smith has gone. They're going to struggle without Bob Smith. Like, who the hell is Bob <laughs> That you'd
1: never heard of. Who well, I'm sure, like, actually, junior ministers do very important jobs and they actually end up doing a lot of the ministerial work that the Secretary of State is too busy doing Bob Smith
0: is a very underrated very underrated guy he's a future leader actually good
1: moment to mention I can't remember his name who was the Tory MP who randomly decided to stand for leadership twice Oh Christie? Yes. yes. <laughs> who
0: used to be who used to be a
1: member of the Labour
0: Party, confusingly. But, but
1: was also a Tory backbencher that nobody had heard of before he announced his I intention. think he
0: got one nomination, which is literally him. Literally no backers. It's the fact that he then went and tried again. I suppose there is a logic in I had you heard of him at the start of the year? You have you've heard of him now. I mean it raised his profile. Yeah. Um, Political aficionados, at least.
1: We did have that moment when people were resigning from government faster than it was possible to reappoint them. And there was a sort of select committee hearing that Boris Johnson went into where he was trying to brave it out, where all of the select committee chairs who have the most access to grind were able to just go for it. And then during the committee, I think one of them was keeping a tally of just resigned, you've just lost another one. It was absolutely extraordinary. My,
0: my favourite fact from that very odd week my, my book which I'm going to talk about later came out on the day the Prime Minister eventually resigned by the way which which meant that the, oh, Boris Johnson Boris Johnson <laughs> yes, okay. have to, have to, you're right we have to clarify that but we were having a launch party and we lost half our guests because they were members of the lobby but no my favourite pa- fact from that very weird uh, that very weird period is that in in the Department of Education offices they have a corridor with pictures of every Secretary of State mm. there and they do include Michelle Donilon who held the role for I think 36 hours that week before she was bumped up from universities minister and then almost immediately resigned to put pressure on the Prime Minister to go.
1: And now she's Culture Minister so it's been a good week for her.
0: Yeah, but Culture War Minister I think is, is the official title. This
1: was your positive one, John. This is your I... high point.
0: For those of us who do, you mentioned Access to Grind and obviously journalists can also have those. I've written a lot about London politics down the years so I used to get very annoyed with the lack of really anything from the Boris Johnson mayoralty. They, he just, he always seemed far more interested in having the job than doing anything. And so, it was always a source of immense personal irritation to me that this guy was popular and kept winning elections. So there was, from a purely sort of personal resentment point of view, I did get a lot of the joy out of watching Hubris finally meet Nemesis and him finding himself friendless and, and even though, like, he really did hang on for quite a long time. Mm. Like, his whole thing was just brazing his way through it. But nonetheless, like, it finally got to a point where there was just no way he could remain in office. And then a couple of months later, he tried to come back and it turned out he didn't have the numbers to do that either. That's having been waiting to see this guy humbled for 15 years. That did give me a lot of joy.
1: A coda to the Greek tragedy.
0: Yeah. It it out.
1: I will do my low point because it is not a fun one to joke about, but it is as relevant now when we're recording as it was at the start of the year, which is Pestminster and all of the MPs, particularly Conservative MPs, who have been accused of things, arrested for things, this have come out, historic complaints have come out, some of whom were actually instrumental in the downfall of Boris Johnson. We had two, 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 two by elections the Wakefield by election and the Tiverton Honiton by election, one lost to Labour and one lost to the Liberal Democrats, which kind of happened as the process to get Boris Johnson out was, was sort of already partially underway. And both of those were examples of conservative MPs caught in sexual harassment scandals, one of whom for looking up tractor porn. He wasn't actually looking up tractor porn, he was looking up porn. His excuse was he was looking at tractors. And then there was Chris Pincher, which was the scandal that was the catalyst for bringing down Boris Johnson. And more recently, we've had Julian Knight, who has had the Tory whip suspended after accusations of sexual misconduct, which obviously he denies. How do we, John, you've been watching politics for a really long time.
0: Oh, wait, 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 make you sound old. <laughs>
1: As we all have. How how do we fix this? How does this get better?
0: God, if I knew that, I'd probably be in a room where I was a lot better paid than this one. I think that there are very obvious structural reasons why this happens, which is that it is always going to be useful to the whips. Well, firstly, it's going to be useful to the whips to have compromise on people. So I don't think their interests are always necessarily served by making sure everyone behaves well the whole time. But also, they are always going to be more interested in in making sure they have the numbers on their side of the house. And that does lead to a certain leeway, I think, in terms of, well, we'll remove the whip for a bit, but we'll, we'll make sure they get it back when we've got any crucial votes. And this has been going on for a really long time. And that's, I also think it's worth stressing, this isn't... So much of what makes me angry about British politics at the moment is specifically like the incompetence and arrogance of the Conservative Party. And this really isn't. This is a much broader problem because mm. we do see these problems in, in in other parties as well. Yeah, in because
1: Labour, in the SNP, in, in, even um, in the Lib Dems. Yeah, the
0: Lib Dems, I think, proportions to the number of MPs they've got. I think they might be the worst <laughs> of all sometimes. But, it's, but because, again, like they all have the same, like the party hierarchies all have the same set of incentives. And I think there is also a a problem in that there's no, it's not just sexual harassment either. There is so much bullying that goes on in Westminster. Because if you are a researcher working for an MP, you do not have recourse to an HR department. There is nobody, there is no chain of command independent of your employer that you can go to and say, I am being treated badly. Which just means that you are kind of at the mercy of who your boss happens to be and how well behaved they are. If you are being bullied by an MP, there is really not very much you can do about it. And the sexual Harassment is just a kind of much worse version of that, I think.
1: And it was historic bullying allegations that led to Rishi Sunak losing his very important minister for nothing much really, but he's quite important, Gavin Williamson. Oh yeah, he got a knighthood
0: this year, didn't he? That was a low point. I
1: think... January wasn't it? Yeah, yeah right. So Gavin. Gavin
0: Williamson. It's yeah. uh, so what does he know about these guys? Because nobody likes him. He's not like sometimes. Like I can't bear Pretty Patel or Suella Braveman, But you can work out which bit of the Conservative Party they are there to represent. Gavin Williamson, though, who are his friends? Why is this happening to him?
1: <laughs> People who like spiders or like riding crops. Uh, I suppose
0: there probably are quite a lot of them in the Conservative Party. To be fair, and
1: still. moving on. No, I just wanted to mention the uh, the Persever scandal because I think. It has been a running theme from the last year, and unfortunately, it looks like it probably will continue to do so. But you're going to bring us down again before I bring us up, aren't you?
0: Oh, my low point. I don't. This is in some ways a really boring answer, but I think it was Quasi Quateng's mini budget, which turned out to be, as I think I'm actually quoting you here, rather more maxi than the intended. But just like the amount of confidence in the British economy he managed to wipe off in a single statement increase in people's the increase in interest rates which sort of has a direct impact on people's mortgages and people's personal debt and so on I think you would be hard pressed to find a single speech by a British politician that has done so much damage in such a short space of time and it's easy to look back on that period and, and yeah. Again, if you write about if you write nonsense about this stuff for a living, it's quite fun in some ways. When there's like kind of rolling chaos, again, it gives us a lot to talk about. But this this has a real impact on people's lives. If things got worse, because he and Liz Truss screwed up so badly, and I think they obviously they, they will go down in. History is an incredibly short-lived failed government. But they're fine financially. They're not going to not going to suffer any further consequences. Like, it's incredibly humiliating for them. But they're not going to have to worry about how to heat their homes this winter. They're not worrying about how to feed their kids. And a lot of people out there are.
1: And it is worth mentioning that even though things have calmed down a lot since that sort of six-week period of pure chaos, which isn't even on the front pages most days. There, there are other stories beyond... very specifically what's going on in number 10 but the problems are still there very much so and will be so over the winter and into next year problems with the economy and inflation and the price of energy and mortgage rates which obviously feeds into rents as you mentioned and just all of the cost of living crisis now let's not be unfair and say that all of that was 100% caused by that fiscal statement but it did make it blow up in a way that was much worse, I think, than it would have been, or much faster, and because of that, much much harder for the subsequent government to try and reverse.
0: Yeah, I think it it turned a slow burning problem into an immediate crisis. Also, I think it's a mark of how far we've fallen that Jeremy Hunt, at this point, is a genuinely quite reassuring figure. Yes. like the guy. I mean, I've had this a few times. There was a point. But well, there was a point earlier this year where I was genuinely hoping for an intervention from Michael Gove, <laughs> or where like Grant Shapps genuinely looked quite statesmanlike. And That's what this
1: year is, doesn't to yeah,
0: us. Yeah, it's just like all the all these people who were punchlines five or ten years ago are now the elder statesmen just because of everybody else we've seen go through politics since. But yeah, the current government, given their due, they have kind of calmed they have kind of calmed the waters a little bit. But. We do still have... We are recording this at the time where there's huge numbers of strikes planned Mm. and there's a lot of public sympathy for... I think
1: think, think there is almost one strike a day every day from now until Christmas.
0: Which is crazy, isn't it? It's it's the winter of discontent all over again. It is like my late father would never vote Labour because he was so annoyed by what happened in, in the winter of 78, 79. I do wonder whether this will have a similar effect. This will be the kind of capping effect on a generation's refusal to ever vote Conservative after this.
1: Shall I bring us back up?
0: Yeah, let's say something to you. Well,
1: my high point actually is not going to sound like a high point because it involves the very sad death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II.
0: But that my, was your high point? But It's very patriotic.
1: My high point was what happened next and what the country was like for those 10 days. And I actually think I don't normally have a I'm-proud-to-be-British kind of sense. That's not... <laughs> I'm from London. You've written extensively how being from London is different from being, feeling like you're English or you're British. No, I just think that it was a triumph in terms of logistics, in terms of showmanship in a way, in terms of Politics. And we know that sort of politics will pause for two weeks, and then we had the budget that we've already talked about, that kind of crashed everything. I love the fact that Liz Truss was prime minister. Everyone says forty-four days; it was actually forty-nine days. It was forty-four days before she announced she was resigning. But the shortest-serving prime minister, and yet the only one for seventy years who has served under two monarchs, which I oh, think that is a, incredible. It's going to be a wonderful pub pub quiz question. And the queue. I was really inspired by the queue, I was really inspired by the kind of, th- the way it captured public consciousness and people's imaginations and all the different ways that people process their emotions about the last year through the medium of queuing, which is the most British thing ever. And obviously, it's sad that she died, but she was like in her she late 90s. Like,
0: she was, was going to die at actually, some point.
1: Maybe 96. I, I, and I think that it was just a really lovely moment for us as a nation, and particularly lovely, that it wasn't Boris Johnson who was in charge of proceedings simply because one of the some gossip I heard was that one key reason he had for wanting to stay on over the summer and not resigning at the start of June and having a caretaker prime minister was because he really desperately wanted to be the prime minister, Churchill style, overseeing proceedings. And obviously it was Liz Truss. Yeah,
0: no, you're right. I do love the conspiracy theory version of this that the Queen was just determined to hang on until he went. <laughs> That she hated him. That yeah, much. she hated him that much that she like, <laughs> she was like remaining alive through the power of pure loathing of Boris Johnson.
1: Funny you should mention conspiracy theories. Do you have a book out this year?
0: Well, oddly enough, I, so yes, my my book, Conspiracy: A History of his Theories and How Not to Fall for Them, co-written with the delightful Tom Phillips, is available from all good bookshops. Yeah. This doesn't feature in it sadly. It did come out in July, so we'll save this one for the follow-up.
1: But you can find the link to the podcast on that in the show notes. <laughs> Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. So, tis the season of being really cold in the snow while your train doesn't come and uh, thinking about Christmas, this is our first proper Christmas really for three years and it does feel like the country has got into Christmas spirit in it a way. It feels crazy it's, out there. It, is it always like this? Have we just forgotten what it's normally no, like? No, I
0: think it's so a couple of weekends ago. My, my, my partner and I were out in the West End to see a film on the Saturday afternoon and we came out and it was like New Year's Eve. Yeah. In The, the streets were so full, people were spilling into the road and mobile reception was down because there were so many people. And this was like the last Saturday in November. It just feels everyone's really going for yeah. it because they've they cancelled because the it's last been so two. miserable.
1: Yeah. Now we were going to talk classic Christmas films or one classic Christmas film in particular, a film that lots of people have a sort of love hate relationship with, which is obviously. Love Actually.
0: Which I should say up front, I've not seen in 20 years.
1: See, I've seen it every year for the last 20 Why years. Why have you done
0: that to yourself? Was-
1: so two, two reasons. One is I actually, I know the lobster. She was at my school, the little girl. He goes, we've been given our parts in the school play and I'm the lobster. So from a sort of school spirit, friendship way we were obviously going to become obsessed with it but
0: I know the lobster is a great sentence by the way.
1: (laughs) But it actually and this is disturbing when you think about it it became our family Christmas film and it is the film that my parents and my sister and I watched basically every year sometimes multiple times a year and I'm not sure if that's entirely inappropriate because my sister was 11 when it came out.
0: So I do think there is a thing where the Christmas films she has as a kid are the ones that are going to be your Christmas films. That yeah. I, like. My, my partner, Agnes, had not seen a lot of the Christmas films that I think that are, that are kind of important to me. And I've shown them to her and she's been incredibly unmoved by every single one of them. Like she, she could tweet us her way through The Muppets Christmas Carol. Oh, great. No one told me it was a musical. Thank you. I love uh,
1: The Muppets Christmas Carol. But you wanted to mention Love Actually because you have a theory about that will effortlessly join up this weird random Christmassy section to the politics Beforehand, in a way that we totally planned.
0: I do have a theory. Really regretting mentioning before we started recording because now I've got to talk about it. Tell us your theory. So when it came out, I wrote an absolutely furious essay for a long dead website called AK13, which which kind of used it as a jumping off point to. This was in 2003, 2004, by the way. To use Love Actually as a jumping off point to talk about the how you could use the work of writer Richard Curtis to track the decline of the Labour Party with the
1: medium of Hugh Grant.
0: For, for, no, through the medium of Richard Curtis. So if you kind of look back at not the Nine O'Clock News in the late 70s, which he was a key writer on, who'd been quite radical. And then there was Blackadder, which was, you know, a bit, maybe a bit less, but still quite, still quite angry. Yeah, edgy, edgy, that's the word I'm looking for. But then in 1994, which of course was the year Tony Blair took over the Labour Party, he does Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is a great film, very cuddly. It's not, you wouldn't call it radical, would you? No, in 1997, really. the year Labour came to power, Richard Curtis's main work was the movie Bean. <laughs> and I think we should have been worried then. But like the, my my fury, my fury about Love Actually was just, it was set in this world.
1: That does it, not exist.
0: Uh, yeah, it, it is that kind of Richard Curtis movie London where nobody ever worries about paying their gas bill in a Richard Curtis movie. Nobody's ever worried about their pension. And, or like a,
1: and, and random 20-somethings have beautiful multi-million pound muse houses in Hampstead.
0: Yeah, I would be very interested in the sort of modern remake of Notting Hill, in which, the, which is a Richard Curtis film, in which the Hollywood movie star is really appalled to discover that the, handsome 32-year-old Londoner she's met is still taking money from his parents because that's the only way he can afford to live in London and decide she's not going to go for the relationship on that basis alone. Um, but this is, now I think about it, it's not really remotely about Christmas, any of this. This is just about how angry I was about the Labour Party in 2003.
1: Bring it back to Christmas, or bring it back to Love Actually, and I also think that it has ruined our politics because I think so much of politics since Love Actually came out, which was 2003. It Three. was Christmas
0: 2003, yeah. 2003.
1: They've modelled themselves on that speech where Hugh Grant is taking down the US president and he wasn't going to be tough and represent Britain's interests until the US president decided to, to hit on the girl that he quite fancies. who's the tea lady, which is totally appropriate, but let's pause that for a moment. And then he goes, we may be a small nation, but we're a great nation, a nation of... Was it Churchill, The Beatles, Dave, Harry Potter?
0: David Beckham's left foot. I David Beckham's right foot. Like. Yeah.
1: But it is, and the music soars. And I actually watched it for the first time in a in an American cinema because we were in Seattle for a wedding when it came out. And this room full of Americans erupted at this, like, applause at this moment. And I didn't That's wonder, interesting. They liked it. They loved it. Ah. They, loved it. they were all in love with Hugh Grant. But I wonder if some of the rhetoric we've got about Prime Ministers, David Cameron, certainly Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, since then going, ah, yes, I need to really stand up for Britain's interests by slagging off my opposite number in whatever country. Sort of Liz Truss saying, I can't tell whether Emmanuel Macron is friend or foe. Some of that Brexit rhetoric. Did that come from the idea that the way you show yourself prime ministerial is to be really rude about the President of the United States? The
0: love, actually, theory of British politics. I'm not convinced by this. I think if you wrote it down, there'd be traffic in it. So if I was still a commissioning editor around here, I would be pushing on this front. But no, I do think it, it originates the sort of like the politics as vibes, yeah. the, the vibes approach to politics. Because it's like, what is he actually saying? Is he does, after this speech? Does the Hugh Grant Prime Minister pull Britain out of NATO? <laughs> Are we no longer signed up to Article 5? No, I th- I think, what does it mean?
1: I think what you're meant to get from it is that the US president just takes a step back and goes, whoa, and gives Britain everything that they want. I think that is the takeaway. Although the politics but, is unclear. Is he a Labour politician? Is he a Conservative politician?
0: I think it's... He's won an election. He's won an election. before and, Christmas, yeah. which is weird. Yeah. It's, yeah, no, you're right. It's very unclear which party. <laughs> I think the other thing that's striking about that, looking back, is... And I think this this did make more sense at a point in the, Southern, the cool Britannia era, God help, that it, it positions Britain as this kind of plucky little island. That is not how the large chunk of the planet that this country colonised views us. We are not generally seen as, I, I don't think we're generally seen as a small country either. We're not a small country. We're actually quite a big country. It's just we're small when you put us next to the United States or China.
1: Everyone is small compared to the United yeah, States or China.
0: Yeah, but we're still, we're still reasonably big. And I don't think... Plucky Little Britain is something there is generally a market for outside of Plucky Little Britain itself.
1: Which is quite a good segue, actually, into the final part. It's a
0: terrible segue. Very, no, well, you're lying to yourself. No, yourself. I think it's a
1: good one. Because instead I just of, pity
0: the producer, that's all.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Meg. But instead of you ask us for this Christmasy episode, we have a section that I am calling We Ask Each Other, where we are going to talk about a our favourite Christmas tradition fact from somewhere other than the UK. That was a good segue now.
0: Okay, clever. Yeah, yeah I see so you that. should
1: have had faith in me. John, what is your Christmas from around the world fact you'd like to share with New Statesman listeners?
0: L- lo- long-term followers of my work will be unsurprised that I would like to talk about the story of the Gavle goat, uh, who who is, uh, or Gavle bokken, who is a giant straw goat erected every year in the eastern Swedish town of Garvle, which follows from, uh, there is, the, the yule goat is a very well-established Nordic Christmas tradition. It's something to do with who pulled four sleigh, I think, or something like that. But it does mean the image of the goat has traditionally been associated with Christmas in Sweden and parts of Finland. And they've been erecting the Garfley goat, which is several metres tall, made of straw, in the town square. You said
1: 13 metres, one of them.
0: One of them was, the largest was, is in the Guinness Book of Records. But the reason it's notable, this story, is not actually because of the size of the goat. Although, come on, 13 metres, that's a big straw goat. The reason it's notable is because there is a long-standing, tradition is probably the right word, of somebody, of arsonists setting fire to it every year.
1: So their Christmas tradition is set fire to the goat? Well,
0: the town's Christmas tradition is to erect the goat. The public's Christmas tradition is to try to burn it. So it's something <laughs> this like... This f-
1: weird combination of Christmas, Guy Fawkes and the Wicker Man.
0: Yeah, it's something like half of all the goats they've ever erected have burnt down. There have been a couple that were destroyed in other ways. One year someone drove a car into it. One year... There are amazing stories attached to this thing. There's one year they had guards, volunteer guards, standing around the goat... It starts to snow. Goat guards. Goat guards. It starts to snow and the guards think, well, we can't stay in this. No one can set fire to the goat in a snowstorm. That assumption turned out to be wrong. The goat went. There was another year, someone dressed as the gingerbread man fired a flaming arrow at the goat. It, honestly, it's just the most amazing story. And every year they still erect this goat. and they still like, There was one, In 2006, I think it was, they were storing the goat in a secret location. Because it had become, it was so endangered they needed a secret location to store their goats. This and other stories can be found in the compendium of Not Quite Everything, which is my book that came out last year, which is the other book I came with here to plug.
1: Which would conveniently probably make quite a good stocking filler book. It,
0: it? would. Also, if you want to read the full account of the Gavalet goat, I also just published it on my Substack, which is john.substack.com, so you should go check that out as well.
1: You're getting your pitching well, alert. I am.
0: What's your favourite Christmas story, Rachel?
1: <laughs> so, my favourite Christmas tradition from around the world is the fact that the traditional Christmas food in Japan, at least since the 1970s, is KFC chicken.
0: I that is, Yeah, that is amazing, isn't it? It's, do you know why? I
1: love this. It was a marketing ploy, basically, that Kentucky was like, oh, it was a marketing ploy, basically, that KFC in Japan thought that it would be cool to do a special Christmas style offering in the same way that fast-foods outlets do four kinds of festivals. They said it was inspired by having expats in Japan being quite sad that they couldn't find turkey for Christmas and they were like, well what if instead of turkey we had chicken and what if instead of roasting it, it was fried chicken or Kentucky Fried Chicken? And this is a real thing and I thought it wasn't because I was actually in Japan in the lead up to Christmas about a decade ago, which makes me feel very old. And my Japanese friends they were telling me this and I was like, okay, you don't actually have this tradition where three point six million of you go out and have KFC for Christmas dinner. But it is in fact
0: true. Yeah. It's I do find it interesting that like Japan is either Japan is obviously not a nation of Christian heritage. But through the power of consumerism Christmas is still a huge thing there Like I remember seeing on some I think it was actually Michael Palin's Polter Pole 30 years ago talking about someone the person in Finland who pretends to be Santa said that one of the countries they get the most letters from every year is Japan
1: they just because take so. the bits of tradition that they like from other religions but, and other cultures but
0: I think there is an argument that's what Christmas is anyway <laughs> I think it's not it's an exaggeration to say it just like the, the church just stole existing pagan traditions like Saturday no. or whatever but there is there have always been these midwinter festivals and but you borrow, what they mean is fairly mutable
1: yeah you borrow traditions from one and you turn it into the other well, the reason I like the KFC Japan thing is because up until Christmas 2020 I had never had full Christmas dinner I never celebrated Christmas I'm Jewish my family didn't we celebrated Hanukkah which has its own amazing traditions like when my sister decided to drape a pot plant in tinsel and fairy lights because she really wanted a tree and my parents wouldn't let her have one
0: my ex-wife's family were Jewish and they went through this every year <laughs> it was like a real divide over whether or not to decorate a pot plant it was great
1: I <laughs> to know that it's, it, it's not just us but I like the idea of having they eventually
0: different... settled on calling it the Hanukkah bush as a compromise that but was the deal
1: there is a, a, an American children's book called There's No Such Thing as a Hanukkah bush so uh, well, that's depressing it's yeah. a real thing or rather it, it isn't but I like the idea that different cultures do different things. You don't have to have over-dry turkey that no one really likes. You can have Chinese food, you can have KFC, you can have vegetarian and vegan options. I like this idea of pick your own tradition in a way that works for you because the Japanese have very clearly done that.
0: I'm an absolute sucker for Christmas. I love it. But it is it's not remotely, I'm not a religious person it is purely because I do think there is something lovely just about the idea, of the ritual element of it just the idea. There is a month of the year where you where there's just parties and events to go to and you just turn to your friends and family and tell them you love them and everything stops for a bit and we get to take stock before, before starting again. I think that's very important.
1: And then in and, January as you say, it all starts again? And
0: in the meantime time you set fire to your giant straw goat
1: <laughs> you've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Rachel Cunliffe and my guest New Statesman columnist John Elledge we're produced by Mae Robson and Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil licensed under Creative Commons